in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, we see a, a final passage where Peter lovingly instructs the church on how to walk through suffering. It's really even a summary of what he's been teaching. Before we get to the text, though, I want to read an excerpt from an interview from someone you may or may not be familiar with. Probably a lot of you are uh, with Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you are familiar with her. She is, when she was a teenager, that she was swimming and she dove into a bay and misjudged the depth of the water and she broke her neck and was a, and has been a quadriplegic since then. Uh, And she is one who the Lord has used in deep ways to minister to those who are suffering. She has one book called um, When God Weeps. If you're looking for a book just to wrestle through suffering, that is a a, a wonderful book. Um, and I, I noticed when I was looking this week that she has a, a new one on suffering. I forget the exact title, but it, a newer one um, than that first one. And those are wonderful books to dive into because she understands suffering and she understands resting in Christ. And this is what she said in an interview in 2011. She said, For more than 10 years, I have dealt with chronic pain very unusual for a quadriplegic like me, piled on top of my quadriplegia. At times it seems just too much to bear. So I went back and examined my original view on divine healing to see what more I could learn. What I discovered was that God still reserves the right to heal or not to heal as he sees fit. Then she says, and rather... And rather than try to frantically escape the pain, I relearn the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my pain as a sheep. I love this illustration. I like to think of my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary, where otherwise I would not be naturally inclined to go. Again, let me just read that last couple things. I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my suffering, my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels and driving me down the road to Calvary, driving her deeper and deeper to Christ. And I, as we look at this passage and these final instructions of Peter to us in suffering, we see that. We see that truth, that it drives us to Christ, our suffering. So as we begin, we'll read just little by little as we go through again. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And he begins to tell us in our suffering, what should we think about during this time of, of fiery suffering? He says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. God, God is not absent. So it really digs into our expectations And he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So he begins and says, For it's beloved, or maybe in your translation it says, Dear friends. And Peter, he was a loving shepherd. I think of how Christ came to Peter and said, Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. 
And here he does that. He lovingly addresses this first century church and most likely are in the area of uh, modern Turkey would be where these churches are at. And most likely they're churches of Gentile believers who have recently turned to Christ. They've turned away from their culture often and their um, gods of that age and the vices of that age and they've rested and followed in Christ. And because of that, remember, they've been outcasts. They're maligned. They're mocked. And he writes to them as they walk through these things and he calls them to suffer well. And he'll speak these words that really should be anchors for them, anchors of their faith in their heart as they rest in in the work of the Holy Spirit even through these things to encourage your soul. And Peter lovingly commands them then to not be surprised by fiery trials as they follow Jesus. Not to see them as unexpected When they face them, they they shouldn't be thrown off course. But it should be an expectation that they come. And often our expectations aren't um, always set right. And sometimes when things that are difficult come, we think it's strange and we wonder why. This is out of the ordinary, isn't it, God? Don't, Don't I deserve different than this? But I think we need to check our expectations often. Sometimes... In life, we have things that we think are our are rights, things that we think God owes us. Um, but often, often those things that we think God owes us are actually just things that we have kind of desires that we've had that morph into what we turn into demands to God. Kelly and I, we've been going through a discipleship program with an older couple that's been really great. And one of the things it talks a lot about has been this, these expectations and in life, sometimes we think there are things that God owes us, and when he, we don't get them, we're, we're really upset with God. Things like temporary happiness, or maybe success at work, or in a job, or even a release from a time of suffering. But there's times where God drives us into suffering to, to drive us closer to Him, that we might know His grace and His mercy and His comfort even in a deeper way. So sometimes we need to be careful that we don't misplace what we think is something that God owes us, or even a desire that becomes a demand of God. So suffering, we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes upon us. But we're to ask questions even. What is the Lord doing? He says, when these trials come, when they come upon you to test you, and ask, Lord, what are you seeking to refine in me? Early on in First Peter, in the first chapter, we saw that the Lord uses suffering to refine our faith. Let me just read that. That's in chapter 1, um, just a few pages earlier. Verses 6 and 7, you'll find that. Where it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's been said that suffering um, is a crucible of, of our faith. It's a thing that tests us, that refines us, that demonstrates even our true faith in him. And he, he, Peter, again, uses that illustration of how metals are refined by fire, by the heating of them, and our faith, it's even more precious than gold. And the Lord uses that to refine our faith and causes us to, to rest and trust in him. And fire and trial 
does drive us deeper into our dependency, dependency upon God. Without them, we would, not, we would not lean in, we would not press in to grow deeper in our relationship with God. We would not rest in, in his strength, in his will, in his word, in his grace, in his mercy, in his long-suffering, in his provision, in his power, and even his true um, tender care that he extends out for us. And there are times if without trial we would just rest in ourselves and depend upon ourselves. but the Lord brings us in and pushes us in um, just like that sheepdog nipping at our heels that drives us closer to Christ. Sometimes we place our hope um, in the midst of trial. We place our hope in God removing that trial. But that's not always the way that the Lord works. This is a quote from that discipleship material that I just mentioned. It said, it says, loss of hope. Loss of hope stems from placing hope in God changing our circumstances rather than placing our hope in God sustaining us through the trials. So sometimes we we think the hope is that the circumstance might be removed from us, but sometimes that isn't the case. We need to place our hope in the Lord sustaining us, His his day-by-day, moment-by-moment grace that enables us to walk through those things. So expectations, uh, not being surprised. Then verse 13, what else do we see as we walk through trial? Well, we, should, we can rejoice because Christ, Christ is with you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So as we look at suffering, we're called to look at it through God's lenses of his eternal plan, of his rescue, and even through the lenses of our our suffering servant that we we think about this week, of the death of Christ, one who suffered for us, and our suffering can even drive us into deeper fellowship with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who understands suffering. Paul, he spoke about suffering. Paul's a guy who understood suffering. He is one who who was imprisoned, who was beaten, who was stoned, who was thrown out of cities, who was shipwrecked. And he speaks about suffering. One of those verses is in Philippians 3, verse 10, that says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. And then another one, I think this is probably one of my my favorite passages to go to as I think of suffering is 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, that talks about God being the God of all comfort. He writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in, affliction, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For, we, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. We're reminded that we have a God of all comfort. Again, that's not a comfort that's a rescue from that situation of suffering, but one where Christ stands with us. Who gives us grace 
uh, moment by moment as we look to him and, and we take advantage of all the goodness of his grace by being in his word, by going to him in prayer, by being around brothers and sisters in Christ who point us to Christ. And we enter into deeper fellowship with the Father and remember the suffering of Christ who overcame, who overcame. It points us to Jesus. Let me read a a quote from Pastor David Strain. He's a pastor in in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, If you ever heard him preach, you can tell he's not from Jackson, Mississippi. (laughs) I'm not sure if he's from England or uh, what part of, um, of Europe he's from, but he says this. There is a fellowship with Jesus in suffering that opens to us when we are led by our various trials, by our fiery trials, to love the world and the things of the world less and less, and to learn instead to be satisfied more and more with Christ alone. And I love this. Suffering cuts the cord that ties us to temporary fleeting pleasures and trains our heart to find satisfaction in Jesus. So he cut the ties that that link to things of this world. It causes us to long for eternity and long for Jesus. And then that second part of verse 13, again, Peter says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We know that when Christ returns, we are able to, some miracle, enter into his glory and honor and praise. As we saw also in 1 Peter 1 verse 7 that we read a little bit ago. So we need to to look to those unseen promises and walk by faith in them. These great promises of of this overfilling, this joy abundant that's revealed when Christ returns that we will be able to take part in. And remember that it's a joy that's unimaginable, beyond measure, and be as that quote from Pastor Strain, remembering that we should allow suffering to, to cut our ties to, to longing, to, to, to digging down roots into this world to find our happiness. And they enable us to set our full full joy upon Christ instead. So our trials, our grief from suffering, it, it's not the end destination. Uh, they're not without purpose. Yes, I think in, I know in the midst of suffering there's genuine pain and tears and fear and sorrow, but we're able to, to press on in light of our Savior who's risen. And our suffering will not just at some point end, but it will end in great joy and glory as we enter into perfect fellowship with Christ so we can walk through suffering. Verse 14 we see that we can know in the midst of suffering, know that we're blessed. So again, we're not to be surprised, we're to rejoice, and we can know that, that we're blessed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of, God, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So suffering is not a sign that God is absent. In our life, but he's actually working and refining. His glorious spirit is with us, resting upon us. So it's not a sign that God is absent or that he's abandoned us, but the God of comfort is with us in the midst of it. And he writes to these Christians who have been insulted because they're following Christ, they've been maligned, they've been out 
outcasts, from following after him, of turning away from the things of their culture and the gods of the culture and the vices of the culture and turn to Christ. And they're, they're blessed. Matthew 5.10, you think of the words of Christ and the Beatitudes where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And our suffering is evidence of the changed life in us, that the Lord has done a work in us, and that we've been willing to depart from sin and even endure being an outcast for following Christ. We're reminded that we're, we're not alone, and the Lord is with us. His hand is upon us. In the verses 15 and 16... We see that we're called in the midst of suffering to not be ashamed. Let me read verse 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as murderer, as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he just begins and he reminds, as he's already said in the letter, that when we suffer, we're called to suffer not for doing wrong. Uh, anyone can suffer for doing wrong, and I guess we, we all suffer for doing wrong at, at points and times. And it's not a, a, a looking to, even, even just acting in foolishness, it's, it's not a, uh, that we're blessed because we, we suffer for being foolish um, or being um, departing from the ways of God. And sometimes, sometimes we can do that. We can wear a, a badge of, oh, we suffer. Well, we, sometimes I think we like to suffer. We like to put ourselves in situations where it's more difficult than it could be, and then we're like, "Oh, look at how I'm suffering." So I just think, like, like this is a silly example, but we do things like this in, in different ways. I'm exaggerating. Um, and if you were to go to King Supers today and get a week's load of grocery, and you you go up to the line and and they start bagging your groceries and say, "No, no, no, I don't want any bags." And, and, they, and you say, oh, and they, so they start putting it in the cart. They're like, no, no, I don't want the cart. And you're like, I'm just going to carry them all. And you get your milk and your eggs, and you start dropping them. And you're like, oh, I'm doing it for Christ. And you're just dropping eggs, and you're like, oh, how I suffer. But we just, I think sometimes we do things. We, we, we like, take out a difficult path, and we're like, oh, the Lord is pleased with that. But I, I think it's okay at times to, to, to go a, a, the way that if the Lord's by his grace, um, gives us ways that are a little easier. But he's talking about a suffering um, that is a suffering because we declare the name of Jesus Christ, a suffering because we share the gospel, a suffering because we turn away from the vices of the world or the way of this world and we follow in a different path and people don't understand, but it gives us an opportunity and a door to share about Jesus. He's talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. And here he emboldens his, his readers to suffer as Christians, as followers of Christ. And, and, the, and here he, he, he names them as Christians. And during that time, it wasn't yet a, a title that Christians had placed upon themselves, but more often than not, it was a title used to malign them. It was a derogatory term for, for Christians, for followers of Christ. But he's saying, hey, take that term and allow it to be something that you are not ashamed of that you are not ashamed of. John Piper says it this way, the mark of a Christian is that he experiences deeper and greater joy in being dishonored with Christ than he does in being honored by men. 
Let me read that again. The mark of a Christian is that he experiences deeper and greater joy in being dishonored with Christ than he does in being honored by men. So we're called not to be ashamed and instead to boldly be able to share of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And hopefully this week, maybe as you're out and about in your workplace or in your neighborhood, just to share as you ask people, what are you doing for Easter? And then you can share uh, maybe some things that you are doing in your family that point to Jesus. Verses 17 and 18. We're called to be aware. Be aware of the judgment of God. Verse 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So let's first begin with this phrase or this word, household of God. And the literal translation would be the house of God. God's dwelling place, we know in the Old Testament, is the temple, right? But in the New Testament, it's, it is the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the body of Christ. Those who follow Christ make up the church, and we are the household of God. And Peter here, it appears most likely he's referring back to the Old Testament. Often the New Testament writers, they, they look to the Old Testament and they bring clear interpretation of Old Testament passages and most likely looking back to Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and there's this prophecy of the Messiah to come. And he would begin by refining, refining, beginning in the temple, beginning refining process. And this is uh, from Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offering and righteousness to the Lord." So we see this refinement, refinement of, of fire and like the fuller soap. And as I read this this week, I always, I, I've said maybe several times, you know, I wish that the Lord used, uh, instead of fire to refine, that he used bubbles or soap. Well, I, I, I had missed this verse um, so clearly. Uh, sometimes the soap is involved in our refinement. But, um, so there's, there's this refinement that, that begins, this judgment begins in the temple with the people of God and a refinement that results in right worship and service of God. So then the question was, well, what is the judgment that Peter is speaking of um, for those in the who are followers of Christ? What judgment will we experience? Well, the judgment cannot be um, the condemning wrath of God resulting in, in destruction and separation from God for all eternity because we know in 1 Peter 3.18, he said that the unrighteous one, Christ, or the unrighteous, or the righteous one, let me, let me start over. Okay, the righteous one, Christ, died for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. And you think of Romans 8.1 that says, in Christ there's no condemnation. So we're saved in him. So this judgment is that of the refinement that we saw in 1 Peter 6 through 7. And we see these different things here in these verses even. 
We see that the trials are used to test and to refine and to prove our faith and that which we can then rejoice in um, when we see the return of Jesus Christ. So there's a refining that's happening here. This is from Wayne Gruden. Maybe you're familiar with him. He has a fairly uh, well-known um, uh, systematic theology, a smart guy much smarter than I am, but he writes this. He says, the refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated, and trusting God and holiness of life are growing. So the Lord is, is refining. So if a believer, if believers, those who have followed Christ, if they receive discipline resulting in salvation, that the judgment of those who, who reject the gospel, he's saying it'll be great, resulting in eternal destruction, separation from God for all eternity in hell. So God will justly judge evil. He will right all wrongs. So there's a, a warning here, a call to rest in Christ alone. And then again in verse 18, he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly sinners? So if followers of Christ, again, they still undergo discipline and, and suffering and are only saved by the grace and the works of Jesus Christ. So those who, who reject Christ, he's saying there, there's not hope of salvation. You can't rest in how, how good you've been. You can't rest in how... Well, you've treated other people or that you're better than, than the next guy that maybe the Lord might um, usher you in. But he's saying the only way is through Jesus Christ. The only way. So it's a warning. It's something the Lord uses trials even to turn us to Jesus, that we might rest in him and him alone, which we see even in this final verse in verse 19. With, there's a call to entrust our life to our faithful, sovereign creator. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. This call here called to entrust our lives, to place our lives in him. And it's not into the hands of an indifferent, a half-hearted, a capricious, unpredictable, weak and angry God, but into the hands of a faithful creator, a trustworthy, sovereign God and creator. And yes, there will be suffering, but we can trust that he is using those. If we rest in him, that he's using them to refine us, to, to be that dog, that sheepdog, nipping at our heels, pressing us closer into Christ. And we can trust them in, it, in that. So we, can, we need to entrust ourselves, to deposit our lives into our hands, to fully rest in him, it's, it's uh, again, a, a really bad illustration, but last week we went to Grand Junction, and we have a sweet little dog, Jetta. Some of you don't think our dog's that sweet, but that's okay. Um, but we entrusted it to our neighbor, um, who we love, who we love, who cared for them, and they love our dog, and enjoy taking care of our dog, but there's entrusting, but we entrust our full soul into the life of one who we know will, will take care and trust, and even... We see in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 12, verse 5 through 13, it talks all about the Lord's discipline and how he disciplines the one, ones he loves. Just as a, a father who loves their children, they discipline 
their children. We, we talk about that a lot in our house. <laughs> you got to follow that up, a discipline with, it's because I love you, right? Um, but the Lord loves us. We can entrust ourselves into his hands. And he, in his hands, he's the only one that we can entrust ourselves to through Jesus Christ. I think of Acts 4.12 that says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Christ. He is our only rescue. So as we look at this passage, there's so many things that you can take and glean. And I pray that the, through the Holy Spirit we'll use, maybe you're walking through deep suffering right now. And you need to be reminded of these truths and the Lord's grace upon us and not be surprised. And maybe this morning you come and you recognize that you've been resting in yourself. You've been resting and maybe ho- hoping that your, your goodness might outweigh your bad to kind of get you through. Um, but here we see that our only hope is Jesus Christ. And there's a call to entrust our full life in Him, to turn from our sins and trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. And I encourage you this morning, if you have not done that, to rest in Him this morning. You could even grab one of those cards when you come in, place just a mark and say, you just want to know about more about following Jesus Christ. And for those who are followers of Christ, may we be reminded that we have a faithful Creator that we can entrust our life and our soul in who is doing a work in us. Yes, he might not remove us from the moment, this moment of suffering and trial right now, but he will indeed sustain us and walk us through it. And we're reminded that we have a suffering Savior who understands our suffering, who died and rose again. We celebrate this week the victory of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. May we rejoice.